Uh, this week, we light the candle of joy. We began with candle one, the candle of hope. And last week, we added a second, the candle of love. Joy comes from outside into our lives as a surprise in a turning from sadness to goodness, from sickness to health, from loneliness to communion, and in our case during Advent, from darkness to light. It is this turning point that awakens joy. Joy is in the most true sense of the word, a gift. For some of us this season, we revel in joy already received, new friendships, a job promotion, new marriage. For others of us, we wait in joyful anticipation, like a child who knows that there's a gift under the tree, but in full surprise of what actually is in it. Jurgen Moltmann says that hope is anticipated joy and that anxiety is anticipated terror. And if we're honest, many of us live more in anxiety than hope. But the Advent season reminds us of the coming of God into our world and the promises of God to come again. Hear the very words of Jesus speak about this in John 16, 20 through 22. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Watch and wait for Christ's coming. Light candles of hope, love, joy, and peace, remembering the promises of God with prayer. We light this candle of hope. We light this candle of peace. We light this candle of joy. Let us pray together aloud. Join me with the bold words in your program. God of hope, God of gladness, may our ever-renewing joy be found in your salvation. Let our hearts unceasingly rejoice in the glorious good news incarnated in your Son, Jesus Christ. God of promise, God of joy, into our darkness come. A reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our Lord. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there, 
It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. A reading from Psalm 139, verses 13 to 18. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden to you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days for me were ordained in your book before one of them came to be. How precious, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. A reading from the first, from first chapter of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God at the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of flesh, of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and in the closest relationship with his father, with the Father, has made him known. Well, good morning again. Welcome to First Free. My name is Matt, the pastor here. Glad to have you with us this morning. Uh, this morning, we heard read from the psalmist uh, proclaiming that he is fearfully and wonderfully made. That he's knit together in the womb uh, by the artistic hands of God. He says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I wonder how many of us believe that as a primary truth about ourselves. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know I'm trying to. I'm trying to. When I was a kid, a little kid, uh, I loved sports. Loved sports. Particularly baseball and football. And when I say little kid, I mean a little kid. Like t-ball. I loved playing t-ball. You know that one, right? It's like on a, a stand. The ball is just sitting there ready for you to hit it. And I was awesome at it. I was really, I excelled at t-ball, at least at the batting part. You know, when I was out in the field, 
I was very interested in the different kinds of flowers and weeds and mostly looking at that. But when it came time to bat, I was, I was quite good. Um, and so I would look forward to the games. My dad would come, and I could tell he was quite proud when I would just, you know, pow, nail it off the tee into the outfield. It was a great feeling for a five-year-old, six-year-old, however old you get to play. And then came the first year of Little League without the T, where, you know, they have someone kind of pitch, probably underhand, and it was probably an adult, as slow as they could, lobbing it at you. And I barely finished the season. I wanted to quit after every single game. I would often strike out. I think I had maybe one or two hits the whole season, and they were probably foul balls. Um, I just felt like I was letting my team down. I felt like the kids were all laughing at me on the other team. I could see my dad kind of confused and frustrated, like he was so good at it at T-ball. What's, you know, he wanted to help. He wasn't ashamed, but he was, he was frustrated, and that made me feel extremely embarrassed, right, seeing the disappointment in my own father. The next year, I went to the eye doctor, and they found out that I had um, amblyopia in my left eye, like lazy eye, um, and is the kind where I can't really see out of my left eye. Um, it, it, it moves, the, the eyes are aligned, but I can't really see out of it, um, which affects things like depth perception, uh, quite a bit, and when you're kind of the ball's coming this way and you're trying to see out of your left eye, it's very hard to hit it. I didn't know that at the time until a year later, and so of course I was I was striking out. And not only then was my baseball career over, but I had to start wearing an eye patch on my good eye uh, in order to try and get the brain to start using the other eye. And uh, you know, it's not a great look for a second grader. Because <laughs> it wasn't even the cool kind where you, know, you have like the strings and it's black. It was like a, looked like a Band-Aid over your eye. And though I couldn't put it into words back then or, or probably express it, I think that was the time where my relationship with my body started changing. I, I couldn't trust it anymore. There was something wrong with it. Uh, There was something to be embarrassed by in it. It didn't work like other kids' bodies in my school. I couldn't play baseball anymore. But I could still play football. Now, see, I was taller than all the other kids in my age. Like, drastically taller. And... That meant when it came time to play tackle football at recess in third grade, I would dominate. You get me the ball, it's like, boom, stiff arm. (laughs) Right? Spin move. And then when a kid would kind of jump on and try and tackle me, I'd just keep going. I'd drag him into the end zone. Touchdown, baby. I was unstoppable in third grade tackle football in recess. So I begged my mom and dad, can I please sign up for peewee football? That's where you get all the real pads, a real helmet, and you're playing tackle football. 
I think I was in fifth grade by the time they said yes. And so I was playing peewee football, but the way they did peewee football, they didn't organize it by grade. They didn't organize it by experience. You got on the scale. I was this tall, lanky fifth grader who apparently weighed as much as most eighth graders, which was the end of peewee football, like the varsity. So I was playing with them, and I can still remember in practice getting tackled by those eighth graders. You know, that's what you're doing for drills. Okay, we just want you to run up and down and get tackled by these other kids. And I probably prayed every game, can I please stay on the bench? Can I please stay on the bench? It was uh, not a great experience. I don't think I, I'm not sure I finished the season either. Uh, in fifth grade. I went back in eighth grade because I was the oldest then, and so I you know, wouldn't have to play with older kids. But again, I felt like my body had failed me. Why was I getting forced to play with all these other kids? My height was no longer a gift, but a liability. And I could go on and on about my own body stories, right? You got puberty and and first slow dance and starting to feel overweight and different shapes to my body and, and all that. And I'm sure that you have handfuls of your own stories to tell as well. Suffice it to say that by the time I came into Christianity in mid high school, I already thought my body was bad. So when I heard Jesus say things like, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, I kind of heard it as, the body is bad, but here's an opportunity to have something good in the Holy Spirit. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of interested. And then when I heard St. Paul differentiate between the spirit and the flesh, I thought he was saying... That the spiritual life was good, but that embodied life, life in the body, in the flesh, was bad. And so when he says in Romans 8, verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on things of the spirit. So I thought, I'm not going to be too concerned with all the ways that my body is uh, awkward and disappointing me. I took him quite literally, like, okay, my hands and feet, my eyes, my skin. As a teenager, especially my genitalia, these things are fallen and corrupted, and I was to make no provision for them. True spirituality would require me to deny my body, I thought. So I started to interpret whatever my body wanted, food cravings, touch, rest, sex, at best as weaknesses, and at worst as sinful cravings to be crucified by Christ. Now, I've been in ministry for almost two decades now. And I've got to know a lot of wonderful Christians through that experience. Um, But the more Christians I've come to know throughout the last two decades, the more I realized I'm not an anomaly in thinking this way. Uh, I'm not the only one. And instead of beginning from a primary identity, 
that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving God. Many of us, including myself for a long time, began with the idea that our bodies are somehow shameful and dirty. They get in the way of real spirituality. They're cumbersome. How about you? Is your body wonderful or shameful? Is it something to be delighted in or something to be punished, disciplined? Here's a great test for this. Can you go home, lock yourself by yourself in your bedroom, and stand naked before a full-length mirror and give praise to God over what you see? The reality is most of us can't do that. Most of us can't. And I'm putting us, meaning me, in that sentence. Some of us can't even imagine ever trying to do that. And some of us might even think to be naked even by myself in front of a mirror and to say anything about it is good or praiseworthy before God is sinful. I'm aware uh, that body image is complicated and we're learning more and more about things like body schema and body dysmorphia and all these different ways that our bodies make sense or don't make sense to us. And I'm not trying to minimize any of that or simplify any of that. Our understanding of our bodies is constructed from cultural and familial, societal and religious narratives that we tell ourselves about Our bodies. And they often intersect and they can be very difficult to sort of unravel and pick out which ones might be helpful and which ones might not be true. And so, what I'm going to do for just a little bit is try and stay in my lane as a pastor. And uh, my hope as your pastor is to offer us good news for our embodied selves. My hope is. For us to tell a better story about our bodies, a story that's more faithful to the whole of Scripture and God's vision for God's good creation. The story of humanity in the Scriptures begins with God creating us in love, right? God gets God's fingers messy, It says in Genesis that he forms us from the dirt and then breathes into it. It's quite messy. And furthermore, God doesn't appear squeamish or embarrassed when he goes into Adam's chest cavity and pulls out a rib Closing up the flesh, all for the purpose of making a new bodily companion. The story of humanity begins with God's intimately creative, earthly, material love. And then it's a story of humanity choosing to turn from God. 
to live life apart from God, to do things our own way. And it's really quite heartbreaking what humanity is capable of apart from God. It's heartbreaking what our bodies are capable of under the captivity of sin. What we're capable of doing to other people's bodies is terrifying. You read through the Old Testament or you look on the news and there's a thousand examples. Things like stealing, enslavement, murder, mistreating children, torture, rape. Make no mistake, the body can be an instrument of heinous evil in the world. But God doesn't let the story end there. He seeks to restore and redeem all he's made, including our bodies. And what strikes me as I think about the messiness of living in bodies is that the way in which God decides to restore our relationship to God's self is by coming to earth in a body. The word became flesh. That's what we read in John 1, 14 today. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. The full divinity of God dwells in the full creaturely embodied humanity of a baby. A baby who came out covered in blood and goop. Baby who needed his butt wiped. I hope you realize if God wanted to, God could have decided to restore our relationship by sort of extracting our souls to some, you know, ethereal, cloud like place where we float around like ghosts. God could have said, quite literally, to hell with all this physicality. Let's just go the spiritual route. God could have said, let's turn their flesh into words. Right? The flesh is messy and dirty and it falls apart. Let's just make them into disembodied spiritual beings like words drifting through air from mouth to ear. But instead of making our flesh into words, he makes himself... The primary capital W word into flesh. God became human. Friends, this is profoundly good news for people in bodies. People like you and me. God redeems what God created, God validates the human experience by becoming one of us. God chooses to reveal the fullness of who God is through a human body. Again in John 1, verse 18, it's said of Jesus, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, who has made him known. Jesus 
as he walks the earth, makes God known in a way that no one at any time before that has known God. Because Jesus embodies God. Paul says the same thing in Colossians. In chapter 1, he says in verse 15, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And in verse 19, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In bodily form. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus, which is only possible because Jesus has a body. Jesus became a body. So the incarnation of Jesus, the the putting on of flesh, the becoming human of the Christ in the birth of Jesus is the strongest affirmation of bodily life possible. With that decisive act in history, God says that matter matters. The stuff I've made, I'm not done with it yet. I love it so much, I'll become it. This stuff, our skin, our bones, the stuff of us, the stuff of the world, isn't an obstacle to our relationship with God. It's the avenue for it. And it's not just the birth of Jesus that sort of affirms the body. But when we look at Jesus' whole life, the way he lived in a body, his ministry is full of love for all kinds of bodies. All kinds of bodies that in his time and place were particularly marginalized bodies. Women's bodies, foreigners' bodies, disabled bodies, untouchable, unclean bodies. These are the bodies Jesus seems to navigate toward. Luke 5, in verses 12 and 13, it tells this story. It says in verse 12, While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. This person didn't just have leprosy. They were covered in leprosy. And when this man saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And then next it says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He did, he did the opposite of my stiff arm. But he reached out his hand and he, and he touched the man. And that aspect of touch is more profound than I ever realized. And I wonder for us, how many of us in our places of disdain for parts of our bodies approach Jesus... In those places. In our bodily places of pain. Of discomfort. Of self-disgust. How many of us approach Jesus and invite his touch there? I mean, whatever the thing is for you and your body. Whatever it is, big or small. Could you imagine yourself in vulnerability 
approaching Jesus and inviting his hand of touch there. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. In another story in Luke 8, there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And in this case, she reaches out and touches Jesus. In the first case, he reaches out and touches the man. In this case, she reaches out in the crowd and touches Jesus. And uh, all she can get is the edge of his garment, but still Jesus notices. And uh, Jesus, who's never really into magic tricks, but always into relationship, he asks, who touched me? He could have been like, I know who touched me. Let me do some magic and impress you all. That would have done nothing for the woman. So he asks, who touches me? And his disciples belittle him. They're like, Jesus, it's like super crowded here. It's like Times Square on New Year's Eve. Everybody is touching you. Get over it. But Jesus recognizes her touch as a different kind of touch. It's like of a different quality. Because he says, no, 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 someone, someone touched me and power went out of me. And Jesus wants to know who touched him like that. Not like bumping up against him in a crowd, but like that. And she obviously didn't want anyone to know. Or else she would have said something like, hey Jesus, can I touch you? Um... She didn't want to have to explain her intimate medical issues again. But after she touched him, it says after she touched him, her bleeding stopped. And so she does reveal herself. I want to read to you verses 46 and 47. They describe what happened next. It says, Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. She was already healed. She touched him and then she's healed. Jesus makes this big fuss. Who touched me? And then she has to say it all in front of him and other people. And then Jesus says she's healed. There there was this physical healing that occurred when she first touched him and her bleeding stopped. But then some other kind of healing occurred when she fell at his feet and shared about her body. I think there sometimes is perhaps this even deeper healing in simply being able to share about our bodies with someone who is safe enough to hear it and not make us feel shame, not make us feel gross, not make us feel strange or weird, but simply make us feel, in the best sense, human. In John 9, there's a blind man, and... uh, Jesus' disciples are wondering who messed up to make this guy blind. And Jesus is like, we're not going to talk about that. He shows up to the man and uh, he decides to heal the man. And it says that Jesus spit on the ground 
made some mud with the saliva and, and rubbed it all over the man's eyes. Friends, this is uh, as embodied as it gets in terms of healing. In the Genesis story, which we talked about, man is made of dirt and breath. And it's almost like Jesus is like, I'll show you even more. Like, I'll be a little more. Breath, that's not that gross. You might not want someone else's breath in your mouth or on your faith. But Jesus is like, I'm going to use spit and dirt. And he rubs it all over the guy's eyes. And then in the next verse, Jesus says, in verse 7, Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent, it tells us. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Jesus not only gets super embodied by spitting in dirt and rubbing it all over the guy's face, but then he gives this man an embodied practice for himself before he fully encounters healing. He says, go to that pool. So you can imagine the man... uh, Blind before, but then now also with layers of mud over his eyes, walking, trying to find this pool. Uh, Perhaps the mud had dried by the time he got there. It's caked on there. You know that feeling when you get muddy and it dries on your skin. I hate that feeling. And then he goes to the pool and you can imagine him just dipping his head in or maybe he jumps all the way in. I don't know. The water's probably at least a little bit cool. Hopefully refreshing, but I like to imagine that refreshing water kind of each layer of the mud comes off more and more and more and then his head comes above the water and light floods in his eyes, perhaps like he's never experienced. I imagine that this man would forever remember the place his body was touched by the hands of God. One more story. It's a story of a, a woman in Luke 7. And all that we know about her is that she's lived a sinful life. We don't know what kind of sin. And some people like to infer that it was perhaps prostitution, but the, the scripture doesn't actually tell us anything. It just says it was a sinful life. And in that story, Jesus is invited into a Pharisee's house for dinner. A Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus over and says, come have a meal at my house. And as Jesus is prone to do, he never turns down a dinner party. So he shows up at this Pharisee's house and says he's eating at the table. And this woman is behind him, apparently. She's behind him and she just is weeping. She's crying enough. I hope she was very hydrated. She's crying enough that it's soaking his feet all wet. I don't know how you stand behind. Like, how does that work? You're standing behind someone who's sitting down. I don't know how your tears get to their feet. But somehow, her tears are all over his feet. They're soaking wet. And she decides that the next best thing to do is to get down on her hands and knees and start drying off this teacher's feet with her hair and while she's down there she's like I might as well start kissing his feet so it says she's kissing his feet all over and uh, then she decides I'm going to pour this extremely expensive perfume all over these feet as well 
The next verse, verse 39, says, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Then Jesus tells this story about forgiveness in the middle of it all. And then in verse 44, he comes back and he says this. It says, Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, who is the host, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He says, you did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. He says, you did not put oil on my head. But she's poured perfume on my feet. And he says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus, throughout his life on earth, embraces touch and life in a body. He gives and receives touch. He celebrates in the pleasure of having his feet washed. He celebrates in the pleasurable feeling of being anointed with beautifully fragrant perfume. He delights in the feeling of loving human touch. And he reprimands Simon for treating Jesus in less than human ways. For depriving him of the goodness of touch. I came into your house. You didn't kiss me. You didn't give me water to wash my feet. You didn't put luscious oil on my head to anoint me. When Matthew, in his gospel, tells this same story in chapter 26, he adds this note in verse 12. Jesus says, When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Here's the kicker. For God to open himself to being touched in pleasure is also for God to open himself to being touched in pain. And so he does. He allows unholy hands to grab him, to whip him, to mock him, to place a crown of thorns on his head, to hang him up on a tree, to nail his hands and feet into a cross. And eventually, just as he felt what it's like to take a deep breath and sort of come, come into your own body, as we like to say these days, he felt what it was like to give his last breath and to have an empty body hanging on the cross. Jesus takes on the fullness of what it means to live with a body. The pleasure of life in a body and the pain. The perilous pain of life in a body. And in so doing, he creates pathways for all of us to commune with him. In so doing, he redeems all of it. 
So now our body is not some prison to escape. It's a sanctuary in which to dwell. That's the language Paul uses when he says, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? It's the place where heaven and earth overlap. That's what temples are in the scriptures. Those thin places between heaven and earth. He says, your body is like that. Your body is the place where you can encounter the living God because of all that Christ took on as a body. Friends, I wish we had all day to discuss this because embodiment has ramifications for basically every aspect of life. Let me just list a few, maybe to whet your appetite for further uh, study, further look into this. Embodiment has to do with how much time we choose to spend behind screens on social media in a sort of disembodied community. Sociologists call this phenomenon being alone together. We were made for much more than that in bodies. Embodiment has to do with how we interact with war and images of lifeless bodies in the Middle East, in Ukraine, all over the world right now. This rends the heart of God. He's not above it, just sort of concerned with the disembodied soul after the fact. Embodiment has to do with how we live out our sexuality, what we do with our bodies and with other people's bodies. It has to do with what we refrain from, but it also has to do with the shame that we've inherited and passed on through purity culture and the body shaming that happens especially to young women in the church. Embodiment has to do with how we understand racism and the way different colors of bodies have their lived experience in the world. Embodiment has to do with how we embrace the physical limits of being human. Do we get adequate sleep? Does our food have much nutrition and nutrients in it for us? How are we moving our bodies and exercising? All these are not less than spiritual questions. You know, Jesus calls us to love our enemies. I'll tell you. That is impossible for me when I am hangry. It's not going to happen. I don't love my wife when I'm hungry, let alone my enemies. Very spiritual food and sleep. But embodiment has to do with that. It has to do with paying attention to how we carry pain in our bodies, to, to where tension stores up in our bodies. How does stress manifest itself in our particular body? God cares about all this stuff. And finally, and and one that's quite exciting to me, it has to do with the arts. If God came in a body, and that's now an avenue of encounter for the divine, that means big things for the arts. That means painting and the tactile arts that use matter and the created world, those offer an encounter with God. It means architecture 
and design, things that highlight the way our physical surroundings interact with us, those can draw us closer to the Almighty One. In dance and theater and photography, human bodies are able to communicate something deeply true about God and the human condition that words alone could never communicate. Thank God that the word became flesh and dwells among us.